On Friday, November 16th of this year, a mere five months from now, the last of the seven international units of measurement, the kilogram, will be defined in terms of a natural phenomena rather than in terms of the size of a royal body part or an artifact in the basement of a French museum. The process of moving each of the seven units of measurement to natural phenomena started in 1960, when the definition of the meter was restated to be in terms of the radiation of Krypton 86. One by one, each of the metric units was redefined until the mass, the kilogram, was the last holdout. On November 16th of this year, the Planck constant will be given a fixed value of approximately 6.6 .6 times 10 to the minus 34, and this will in turn fix the size of the kilogram. Simon Winchester is a widely respected author, and not incident incidentally, an extraordinary storyteller. The perfectionist, like many of his other works, such as the man who in the United States, the map that changed the world, and the meaning of everything, is filled with yarns, great and small, but forever engagingly told. And as in, as in his other works, the perfectionist fits the stories together like carefully crafted puzzle pieces to tell a larger story that spans them all. In 2006, Winchester was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire for his services to journalism and literature. And in 2009, he was elected an honorary fellow of St. Catherine's College, Oxford. Simon lives on a small farm in the Berkshires. His interests include letterpress printing, beekeeping, astronomy, stamp collecting, model railroads, and cider making. Will you please join me in welcoming Simon Winchester to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you, Scott, for that. And beginning as you did with the, uh, incidentally, can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, super. Um, with the story of the, the kilogram, um, reminds me of this sort of rather melancholy fact that the whole world obeys the system international of measurement, except for three countries, of course. And those three countries, as I'm sure you know, are Liberia, Myanmar and the United States of America. So, so however sad this may be in the White House, it's not going to be marked with any particular melancholy. Um, this, I'm sort of appropriate. I, um, this book in England, uh, which it came out last week in England and in Australia and New Zealand, um, has a different title. It's actually my original title, which is exactly which I think is it's still my title, but the well, got it. But I, I'm here to peddle my American book, so don't don't um, The marketing people at HarperCollins in in New York, bless them, said exactly. It's a bit difficult to sell a book based whose title is a concept. I thought it was very odd. I mean, exactly. I suppose it's a concept, but. Um, I'm not sure why that should be difficult. Well, they said it'd be much easier for us to market a book which has human beings in the title. So can you go away and think of 
a version of exactly which has got humankind in it. So I came up with the perfectionists and they said, that's terrific, that's exactly what we want. And so they formally accepted it. And I should think it was about 10 minutes later that I get started getting emails and from people within the publishing house saying, well, actually, we hate perfectionists. They're sort of nitpickers, they're pedants, they're fuss budgets. They're just not our kind of people. I'm relieved to say the book is nonetheless doing relatively well. Um, but telling this allows me to dispose of one aspect of this story, which is definitions and the sort of semantics of it. And there are two words which are used lazily by me and most of us in conversation, um, which I want to merely define. And, and because there are no synonyms in the English language, as you probably know, each word is fit for purpose. And these two words, precision and accuracy, are actually rather different, even though I and other people use them interchangeably. So just to get this out of the way, Accuracy, the best way of thinking about the difference between these two ideas is that if you have a, a dartboard and you're firing arrows or, this is America, so let me say bullets. Um, <laughs> no, but I, it's not a cheap shot because I'm an American now. I took my oath of whatever on the USS Constitution, so I'm a very happy American. And um, so I'm as much to blame as any of you are. But so... Your intention when you fire at a target is to hit the bull, to hit the, the center. And if you achieve that, then in terms of the definition, you have achieved great accuracy because accuracy is achieving your intention. Precision is different. If you're firing a gun or an arrow or a dart at a target and you hit, let's say, 10 o'clock, you don't hit the bull, but you do so in exactly the same place, time after time after time after time, you have achieved great precision. Arguably, of course, it's, if you get, happen to hit the bull again and again and again, then you've achieved both accuracy and precision. But the important thing about precision is the replication of, of your action, doing the same thing exactly the same. And this is, it translates into an important fundamental concept in the world of precision engineering, and that is the whole business of interchangeable parts, that you make parts, whether it's for a motor car or a refrigerator or whatever, exactly the same time and time again, then you have achieved great precision, which is central to the manufacturing process. So I just want you to bear that in the back of your minds, and I hope, I pray, that that is the most boring part of what you'll hear today, and that everything, it may go downhill from here on in, but I will endeavor to make it slightly more interesting than that. So how did this, this all begin? Well, first of all, uh, my father was a precision engineer. He made um, very small electric motors for the Royal Navy for use in the guidance system of, of torpedoes. And I remember one event in particular which positioned me well, if you like, for writing a book of this sort. He came home, and I actually begin the book with this little story. He came home one evening, my mother, I was an only child, so the three of us were going to have dinner in where we lived in North London, and um, he brought this beautiful wooden box with him, which he put on the dining room table uh, and, and opened it up. And in it were about 100, 103, actually, actually beautifully machined steel 
cubes and oblongs and then little sort of feuilletons of, of steel, each with a number, usually a decimal point and then three numbers usually ending in a five, like 375 or 615 or whatever. And these, he explained, were what were called gauge blocks or Joe blocks after the Swedish man, Johansson, that invented them. And they were central to his life and to all uh, precision engineers' lives because they were used, you stack them in various combinations, to calibrate your micrometer. So he's, he, the reason he wanted to show me them was that he wanted to show a, display a property of them which I've never forgotten. He took the two biggest ones, so let's say about an inch cube and one slightly smaller, and laid them on the, uh, on the tablecloth. And this caused my mother to have an instant conniption because my mother was from Belgium and she was from the city of Ghent and lace, white lace, was central to her life. And this was indeed a lace tablecloth that I think she had probably made. My father was always bringing things back from the factory and they were all covered with a thin layer of machine oil. And to, to put them on the tablecloth was an utter heresy. And then, worse than that, he started sliding them about. And so she gave a sort of cry and fled into the kitchen. And what he wanted to show me was that these things were not magnetic in any way. So he pushed them towards each other, and they neither attracted nor repelled each other. So once we were satisfied they weren't magnetic, he took the larger one and put it on the tablecloth and put the smaller one on top of it and said to me, now pick up the smaller one. And I picked up the smaller one, and the bigger one came with it. And I thought this was rather odd, because they weren't magnetic. So I grasped the bottom one with my right hand, and the top one with my left hand, and tried to pull them apart. And it was improved impossible to, to pull them apart. And I tried you know, really hard. I must have been eight years old, so I wasn't very strong, but tried. Uh, and it was impossible to move them. And my father said, it's very easy to disengage them. You simply slide the top one off the bottom one. But the reason that they are so adhere so strongly is that their surfaces have been machined perfectly flatly, incredibly flatly, such that there are no asperities that would allow any air to leak in and cause a point of weakness. They actually bond molecularly because they're so flat. And so the two pieces of steel actually become one piece of steel. And that's all because of flatness, which is a central component, he said, of engine, precision engineering. So I remembered that for the rest of my days. Well, clearly here I am 60 years later and remembering it very well. But the second thing that I also remember came about in a much rather more amusing way about 30 years later, I should think, 1984. And um, I was then working as a journalist in London. And um, this was the time when editors of magazines spent money like drunken sailors. And uh, one of them called me into his office and said, we've got a great assignment for you. And it is a sort of dream assignment. I mean, I've never had one like it. He said, um, Winchester, he said, um, we English people, we know nothing about Europe. I think we had just joined it or entered into some economic arrangement with it. But we don't like Europeans, we don't know anything about them, and we want to know even less. So I think it, the duty of our magazine is to tell people about Europe. So what I want you to do is this. I want you to get hold of a photographer and make six journeys around Europe, anywhere you like, by any form of transportation that you care for, and write six 5,000-word pieces for us, which will, we hope, 
illuminate the idea of, of Europe to the average English reader of our magazine. So I thought, terrific, off we go. And I got a photographer called um, Patrick Ward, and we started on these journeys. And so the first thing I did was I uh, got myself a yacht and sailed from, as one does, and from Stockholm to Helsinki, thereby knocking off the northern Baltic. Then I borrowed two BMW motorcycles, and the two of us cycled through the Alps from Munich to Turin. Then we got two horses, and we rode through the Black Forest of southwest Germany. And then we walked, at least I walked, Patrick actually took the, a car, and drove from uh, Cadiz to Gibraltar, so knocking off southwest of the Iberian Peninsula. And then I took a train from Victoria Station in London to the Victoria Hotel in Brieg in Switzerland on the uh, Italian border. And then we sort of regrouped and we went to London to a club I belonged to uh, called the Travellers Club on Pall Mall to discuss the culminating journey, which would actually be the first in the magazine, which was a, a car journey from the westernmost point of Europe to the easternmost point. Um, the westernmost point is actually in northern Portugal, but we decided to cheat a bit and make it uh, in northern France, in Finisterre. There's a cliff on the western edge of Finisterre called the Point de Corsen, and we would start there, and this was Soviet Union time, of course, and we would end up in the city of Astrakhan, which is where the Volga enters the Caspian Sea. So it was a good long journey, and we obviously lunched, I think, rather too well, because at the end, when we were sort of at the brandy section of lunch, um, Patrick said, do we really have to take your Volvo? I had a sort of rather broken down Volvo 245. And I said, we don't have to. Why don't we, why don't we take a Rolls Royce? Uh, he said, that's what I was hoping you might say. Well, while you're sufficiently non-sober to make this call, why not go and call them from the telephone box in the foyer of the club? And so I called Rolls-Royce and uh, said, you know, Winchester Magazine, Journeys, Europe, all the rest of it. And uh, instead of falling off his chair with derisive laughter, the man at the other end said, um, let me call you back in half an hour. And half an hour later, he called back and he said, you're in luck. Um, a silver spirit in ocean blue um, has just comes off the assembly line tomorrow, a cancelled order. And if you'd like to come up to the factory, we'll show you around, and then you can take this car and have it for three months and go wherever you want. So I thought this was a wonderful idea, so I went up to Crewe the next day and wandered around and was shown, with great courtesy, of course, around the assembly line. And the thing that I remember from that was seeing the crankshaft, which had been handmade by one engineer, this beautiful piece of forged iron with... You know, the, the thing that makes the pistons go up and down. And it was all polished with chamois leather, and it looked magnificent. And he wanted to explain his own craftsmanship, how proud he was of this thing on which he had been working for several weeks, I think, that it was perfectly balanced. And he so suspended it between two bearings and started spinning it. And he said, because no one side is any heavier than any other, there won't be a tendency for it to slow down. And in theory, obviously friction would do for it ultimately, but in theory this would spin forever. And so those two concepts, the idea of the, uh, of the ever-spinning crankshaft and of the, um, of the flat Joe blocks sort of remained with me for a long time. Well, 
needless to say, I, I then picked up the Rolls Royce. And um, first of all, I spent about a week driving it around England, ostensibly to sort of learn how to drive it, basically to show it off to all my friends. And the slightly embarrassing thing was that the registration plate was RRM1 for Rolls-Royce Motors 1, but it actually worked out to our advantage because every time I parked it outside the Sunday Times office on Gray's Inn Road, the parking meter people thought it was uh, Rupert Murdoch. And, uh, and, and um, I lived in a little village outside Oxford, and whenever I drove into the driveway to, to the house, all the villagers would come out because they assumed that uh, Roger Moore was staying, staying with them. So we drove this magnificent car and um, got to Astrakhan and had all sorts of adventures which don't really belong here. The, the culminating picture, though, which was used as the lead-in to all six of the articles, was out, me in the car outside the great gate of Kiev in the Ukraine. Um, and in the background was a sort of agitprop picture of Lenin standing, pointing to the joys of a socialist future, and me sitting in front of him on the the hood, the bonnet of this magnificent blue machine, pointing with a sort of bit of a grin to the joys of a capitalist future. <laughs> the magazine sold very well in England. I think its circulation in Kiev was somewhat limited. But the, but the, the result of this was that Rolls-Royce was so pleased that they kept for the next 15 years um, lending me cars. It was indecent. The, the very next assignment, this was in 1984, which you will remember was the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. And um, the assignment I was given was the gangs of East Los Angeles were threatening to disrupt the games in some way. So with another photographer, a chap called Don McCullin, we set off, flew to... Um, to Los Angeles, checked into the Ambassador Hotel on Wilshire Boulevard, and uh, as the concierge heard my name, he gave me a little envelope which contained uh, the keys to another Rolls-Royce, the most ugly Rolls-Royce imaginable. It was called a Camargue, they only, it was sort of the Edsel of Rolls-Royce. They only made 500, and I think they were all bought by sort of West African dictators. And anyway, we drove this car, slightly embarrassing really, but it too became a very useful journalistic tool because um, the particular gang we were interested in was a very vicious, um, unpleasant gang called the, the White Fences. And the head of it, a murderer, a disgraceful fellow, absolutely would not see us or talk to us until he saw the car. And then he said, look, if I can drive the car, then I will be photographed and I will uh, uh, give you the interview. And so the picture that resulted, and which Rolls-Royce was not terribly pleased with, was this gangster sitting at the wheel of this car with a cigar in his mouth and a huge machine gun cradled in his arm. But even so, we continued to get uh, cars for many years. And I became very fond of and sort of intimately involved with, with Rolls-Royce. So those two images, the flatness and the ever-spinning crankshaft, I think made me somewhat fertile ground, if I can put it like that, for when, about seven years ago, a complete stranger wrote to me, um, out of the blue, from Florida. His name was Colin Povey, and he said, I am a reader, and I, he lives in near Tampa. Um, I've read all of your books, and I like them, and well, that's very nice to hear. Um, I am a scientific glassblower. I spend my life 
blowing glass for laboratories or laboratories all around this country. But I've often thought that it would be wonderful to have a book on the history of precision, because precision is everywhere. It sort of infects our life in all sorts of ways. It's essential to modern life. And yet, rather like the air we breathe or the languages we speak, it's sort of invisible to us. Um, but it, it does have a beginning, and it, we don't know about the end, but I think, he said, it would, it would make a rather good book. And because of these incidents in my early life, I thought, he's absolutely right. I mean, I get so many suggestions from people. You know, my great-aunt was uh, fought in the Second Afghan War or collected moths or something. Would you write a book about her? And these ideas generally don't work. But this idea, it seemed to me, had legs. And so I uh, approached my editor in New York, and, and he said, I, I think Mr. Povey is right, and I think you should do this book, except, he said, I'm not certain that I can discern the sort of narrative structure of the book, um, the through line, if you like, as they say in Hollywood, so go away and think about it before we actually write a contract and, and, and start work on it. And so I did for two or three years. I did a variety of research. I was doing another book at the time anyway, another couple of books, I think. But eventually did start to re do some research and then magically came up with a, a number. And I'll, I'll tell you about that briefly. The number that gave me the narrative structure of the book. And it all goes back to the very beginning of precision. Precision has an, an absolute date when it began, and that is the 4th of May, 1776, a, a year, of course, terribly important to us Americans. Um, the month, just two months out, not July the 4th, but May the 4th. And this is something I didn't know, and I'd be interested to know this distinguished crowd. Does anyone know the significance of the, of the 4th of May? other than the, being the birth date of precision. Well, you, you seem a mature audience to me, and it's reasonable that you might not know this. I didn't, certainly. Uh, but May the 4th is Star Wars Day. And, and I'm not quite sure why, but people, after they tell you this, they say, may the 4th be with you. So I know. It's not my joke. It's not my joke. Yes, you're quite right. Anyway, it seems to me quite appropriate that Precision was born on Star Wars Day, and it, it began like this. It, but the, the, the two characters, one of them, the lead person, is James Watt, the inventor, as it were, of the steam engine. He didn't invent it. That was invented by a chap called Newcomen in Cornwall. But he came up with this idea of a second cylinder, which would make it possible to extract energy from the simple physical fact that when you heat water to 100 degrees Celsius, it expands into gas with a volume 1,700 times the volume of the original water. So you must be able to get that to do some, some work for you. So he came up with a design for this massive steam engine, but none of them worked properly at all for the simple reason that he couldn't and his engineers couldn't create a cylinder which would, um, was sufficiently round to prevent steam from leaking all over the place. Basically, you made a cylinder in those days by taking a sheet of iron and hammering and hammer till it formed a curve, and then welding the two edges together, turning it vertically, lowering the piston into it, and the piston then rocked around in this very imperfect thing, like a piano drum, 
and you fueled it up and then steam just leaked everywhere and the thing barely worked at all. It generated very little uh, power. The theory was there, but, but in practical terms it, it, it didn't work. Well, about 70 miles away from where James Watt's factory was, there was a man called John Wilkinson, Wilkinson of the Wilkinson Sword Razor Blades, which I'm sure you'll know. And um, Wilkinson was an iron master. He had iron on his land. He mined it. He smelted it. He did all sorts of things with it. So much so that he was called Iron Mad Wilkinson. He was obsessed with this metal. And he'd made an iron desk like this, a pulpit, chairs, an iron boat. He had in his workshop an iron coffin, and this was before the Me Too movement, and he, for some reason, I'm not quite sure of the sense of humour, he would lie in it while comely young maidens would come up to his workshop, and then he'd spring out and surprise them. <laughs> 18th century humour, it's you know, not... He, he then, he is buried in that said coffin today under an iron obelisk in, in the Lake District. Well, his business, about 70 miles away from Watts, was the making of cannons for the Royal Navy. And he had developed a means of, of boring a hole into a slab of iron. The hole was more or less straight, and the diameter of the hole, if you kept the drill steady, was more or less the same all the way down. But his problem was the simple mechanical problem of turning the drill fast enough uh, without it sort of exhausting the energy of the human beings that were turning the drill. And he said, if only I had an engine that could do it for me. And then he heard of James Watt, had an engine down the road, and so he did the 18th century. This is about 1772 or something, 1774. Um, he did the 18th century equivalent of ringing him up, saying, you know, I'd like to buy a steam engine from you. Can you come and then that'll help me turn my drill. And so Watt came over with all the bits and bobs for making a steam engine, assembled it, fired it up, and it started working, but it didn't work because of all the leaking steam and all the, the things I've described. And Wilkinson said to Watt, he said, you know, your problem is that you don't know how to make a cylinder. I can use the same technique that I've used for guns to make a cylinder for you. How big a cylinder do you want? How big is the piston? And these machines were gigantic. Um, and Watt said, my piston is 30 inches in diameter. Well, said Wilkinson, let me make you a cylinder which is 30 inches and a little bit. And so he did. He set up a huge boring machine on a very flat surface. This goes to the essential nature of flatness, so that as it moved into the block of iron, it didn't deviate up and down. And by dint of very hard work and, and precise uh, workmanship, if you like, he produced what was effectively the first ever properly made cylinder with the, the shaft, the length it needed to be, and the diameter unvarying at 30 inches and a little bit. He turned it vertically, they lowered the piston into it, it fitted like a hand in a glove. What then connected you know, all the other bits, the flywheel and the governor and the levers and reciprocating this and that, fired it up and it worked perfectly. Suddenly there was a chuff, chuff, chuff and this gigantic engine started working and developed real power. And that day, well, it was the 4th of May, 1776, was really not just the birth of precision, but the birth of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Because Wilkinson said 
to Watt, he said, in fact, no, the other way around, Watt said to Wilkinson, this is perfect. I'm going to order 500 of these from you. So this massive order for 500 cylinders, which would create 500 steam engines. And the number, remember I said that there was a number which was important, was the tolerance between the outer edge of the piston and the inner edge of the cylinder, it was the thickness of an English shilling, which was 0.1 of an inch. And that gave me immediately the likely structure for the book, because I could begin the first chapter with things that were made to a tolerance of 0.1 of an inch. The next chapter would be 0.001, on and on and on, until, by extraordinary and delightful coincidence, the most precise thing made today by human agency also happens to be a cylinder. Cylinders figure a lot in this story. And this particular cylinder, um, there are four of them, two in Washington State, two in Louisiana. They're not made of iron, they're made of fused silica, and they're used at the beating heart of these machines that I imagine many of you would have heard of, known by the acronym LIGO, which is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatories. They're huge interferometers. If you don't know what an interferometer is, I won't bore you with the details, but basically they have two enormous arms, each one four kilometers long, and they fire lasers back and forth down them. And if one changes its length relative to the other, that can be detected. And it's important in the detection of gravitational waves, which Einstein, the other day I said Eisenhower, but Einstein, I got it right this time, Einstein predicted that the explosion or the collision of stars or black holes or whatever would cause waves to pass through the fabric of space-time which would make our planet and everything else in the way of the waves slightly expand and contract for a few microseconds. And this device, Washington State and Louisiana and another one being built in India, has now detected six of them and has proved that Einstein was absolutely right in his prediction and that these things do pass through the fabric of space-time. So the cylinders that are effectively the mirrors at the two ends of these, um, of these immensely long tubes are machined, are ground to such a degree of precision that they can detect a change in length of these tubes of one ten-thousandth of the diameter of a proton. Now, a proton is one femtometer, which is 10 to the minus 15 of a meter. And uh, 10 thousandths of that, you've got to add another four zeros, so 10 to the minus 19th. So here you have the beginning and the end of the book. You've got point one in chapter one, and things that are made 10 to the minus 19 at the other end of the book. So I put this to the editor, and he said, great, we're, we're, we'll do that. And that's how the book effectively began. So within this, between 0.1 and 0.19, one, um, I tell all sorts of stories which I hope illuminate not simply the progress, because this book isn't a sort of paean, it's not a homage to precision, but it talks about its development and the twists and turns in what I hope is an interesting way. And, and uh, I'm going to just select, because I'm looking at the time here, uh, a couple of instances of um, where it either changed direction or had interesting social consequences. 
Let's take one social consequence, which occurred almost immediately after the Industrial Revolution began. The Industrial Revolution, powered by these 500 engines that Watt built and sold and started powering factories all over Britain. I mean, suddenly factories were created. Suddenly cities started to expand vastly. You know, London, Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool. And one of the consequences of this was interesting and was exploited by a man who used precision for an altogether different reason, although once again it involved a cylinder. Prior to, let's say, the 1780s, 1790s, the wealthy in England tended to live in the countryside. They lived in castles or mansions or manses or granges or whatever, and they were protected by meadows, by the simple fact that they owned lots of land, and then they had hedges or stone walls and servants to keep away, if you like, the riffraff. So they felt totally secure. All of a sudden, now, now that the Industrial Revolution has started, People were making fortunes but living in cities because they wanted to be next to or near the factories that were making the money for them. And so all of a sudden, wealthy people were building big houses in cities, London and Manchester and so forth. And consider, I mean, London in the 1780s was full of French refugees because the revolution was going on across the channel. And it was also home to many, many impoverished people. So here you have rich people living now cheek by jowl with impoverished people. And that, you know, regrettably, but it's a fact, induces envy, and envy breeds crime. And so these people weren't feeling as secure as the people, the rich people that lived in the countryside. And so they built themselves in, in these various cities, substantial houses with substantial front doors protected by very sophisticated locks. And the lock, it's tempting to think that the, the gun or the clock would be the next beneficiary of precision, but in fact, it was the lock. And the lock that was most successful in London in the late 18th century was made by an engineer called Joseph Brammer. Joseph Brammer, a man of many parts. I mean, he, he invented the first flush toilet. He invented a machine for counting banknotes. So if you ever see that sort of fluttery thing in a bank, that's a, uh, invented by Brahma. He invented the fountain pen. But hedging his bets, he also made a machine that could mechanically produce lots and lots of quills in place the fountain pen didn't, didn't catch on. He invented the beer pump, which obviated the need for the bartender lugging the barrel up. A hydraulic apparatus, which every time you get a pint of beer, you can bless Mr. Brammer, and indeed there are many pubs in England named for him. But most of all, he was a locksmith, and he made this beautiful, beautiful lock, a brass cylinder about that long, with 18, in the particular lock that I'm talking about, 18 levers with springs and so forth. He claimed it to be totally unbreakable or unpickable. And so proud was he of this lock that he put it on show on a velvet cushion in his workshop at 124 Piccadilly, the western end of Piccadilly in London, with a little sign saying, anyone that can pick this lock without smashing it to bits, of course, um, I will pay 200 guineas to. So that was in 1790. And people would come in and, I should say, 
parenthetically, because I don't have that much time, that his assistant was probably the greatest engineer of all time. The man who actually built these, according to Brahma's design, was a man called Henry Maudsley. And Maudsley was the man who came up with the way of making things perfectly flat and did a number of other things. He's just a, a name to remember. But back, back to Brahma and back to that lock. It was on display, people would come in, they, they had to write, uh, to apply, to be allowed to pick it, and they would all retire defeated by it. It was simply too complicated. So the years went on. Brahma himself died, I think, in 1810. The company continued. The company still exists in London to this day. And it wasn't until 1851 um, when the great exhibition in Hyde Park in the Crystal Palace opened with all, by this time, the the Industrial Revolution, which really got off to the races once these 500 first engines were delivered. By now you have steam railway trains and you have marine engines and all sorts of wonderful devices. Um, down one end of the Crystal Palace, after 61 years, was the Brahma lock, still on its velvet cushion, still not having been uh, picked, with, in a glass case, uh, illuminated were 200 golden guinea coins waiting for the first person to pick it. And an American arrived. He was from Boston. He was called Charles Hall, although he actually ran a company in New York called Day and Newell, who um, made locks. And they were very proud of one lock, a horrible name. It was called the Parautoptic Lock. And they claimed, or Charles Hall claimed, that this was unpickable, and moreover, he was the man that could pick the Brahma lock, which had been now unpicked for 61 years. And so they said, fine, be our guest. And so he took the lock and um, using an array of tiny little instruments and very powerful lights and magnifying glasses and various things for holding it securely, he worked and worked and worked for 51 hours, nonstop. And finally, 51 hours, there was this click, and it opened. And the Brahma people said, okay, fair dues. You picked it, you haven't destroyed it. Um, here's your 200 guineas, you've won it. And quite frankly, um, we're not totally discouraged commercially because not many burglars are going to spend 51 hours. <laughs> so I think it's almost an advertisement. You know, our lock takes at least 51 hours to break. Um, so everyone was happy. Now, what about your para-utoptic lock? Does anyone around um, wish to attempt to break it? And a man stepped forward and said, I think I can, I know how to deal with it. He had one small piece of wood and he flitted around in it for 15 minutes. Click, it was open. <laughs> and that man's name was Linus Yale. So the, the Yale lock was born that day in 1851 out of the wreckage of Charles Hall's reputation. The man has never been heard of again. But Brahma and Yale still dominate the, the, the lock business. So all sorts of little stories like this. I, I look, for instance, at a, at a, at a bifurcation in the, in the way that uh, precision was applied to the making of motor cars, for instance. I go back to Rolls-Royce because I was interested in the two Henrys who dominated the, or at least occupied two ends of the spectrum of the automobile industry. You were both born in 1863, both born in relative rural poverty, both fascinated by 
automobiles, and that was Henry Royce in Manchester in northern England and Henry Ford, of course, in, in this country. Both of them, unknown to each other, bought from France these things called de Dion quadricycles, which were effectively two bicycles bolted together with a frame between them and a 10-horsepower, two-cylinder gasoline engine mounted between them. And they roared all over the countryside. And they were noisy, had no brakes. It was incredibly dangerous, but fun. And but, but the two men then decided on different paths. Henry Royce said, I'm going to turn this into the most perfect motor car ever made. And Henry Ford said, this amazing country deserves to be seen by as many people as possible, so I'm going to make the most popular car ever made. And that's effectively what happened. And so in this particular chapter, I look quite closely at two cars, both made from 1908 to 1927, which represent the, the, the two ends of the spectrum. <coughs> you have at the one end the Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost, which they made 8,000 of in those years, from 1908 to 1927. 3,000 of them, oddly enough, in the United States, in Springfield, in Massachusetts. There was a Rolls-Royce factory. And they were made by hand. On the other hand, as it were, is the Ford Model T, which between 1908 and 1927, they made 16 million of. <laughs> And the price of the Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost went up as the years went along. The price of the Model T dropped. It was in 1908, it would cost $819. In 1927, it would cost $209. The interesting thing in terms of precision is that although we think that the Rolls-Royce must be the, the apotheosis, the sinusure or whatever, of an automobile manufacturer, and so utterly precise, it actually wasn't. Because if a piece didn't fit properly, the handmade engineer who was de dealing with it would simply file off a piece of the metal until it did fit. Whereas, and this goes back to this concept of interchangeable parts, which I started this talk with, all the parts for the car on the production line in Dearborn, Michigan, where uh, Henry Ford was making his Model Ts, were pre-made and they had to be made interchangeable. They had to be made exactly the same, whether it was for the carburetor or whether it was for the transmission or the brakes or whatever. And they would come down from hoppers on the second floor into the assembly line underneath. And if a piece wasn't impeccably and precisely made, it would cause the production line to jam. And so suddenly there needed to be investigation, which was the wrong piece, you know, that had been put in. All the workers would sit around, stand around smoking, waiting for the line to begin again. It would cost a fortune. So precision was much more important for the mass manufacturing of inexpensive things than for the hand-making of things like Rolls-Royces. So I go on in this vein, but towards the end of the, of the book, become, if you like, it's rather pretentious to say so, to, to get somewhat philosophical and to say precision is remarkable, but the degree to which we enjoy or suffer it today do we need it? And I look at the possible limits of precision, on the one hand mechanical precision, on the other electronic precision, which goes into the, comes into the story in a very big way after the 1940s. I look at one particular incident, which was the near total loss of a Qantas A380 double-decker Airbus, Singapore, to Sydney in 2010. It, 
took off this aircraft loaded with 459 passengers, I think, bound for, for Sydney. It was going up four Rolls-Royce Trent 900 engines, massively powerful things, fully spooled up, driving this enormous tonnage of, of plane up to its cruising altitude. Suddenly, gigantic explosion from, as it turned out, the inboard left-hand side engine, the number two port side engine, shrapnel all over the place, puncturing the wing, puncturing the fuselage. All the control cables were severed, fuel was gushing out of the wing. Well, thanks to the skill of the five, there happened to be five pilots on board that day, they brought it back to Singapore and no one died. It could have been a terrible, terrible catastrophe. It turns out that the accident was caused by a tiny pipe about the thickness of a drinking straw, the diameter of a drinking straw, and it had been machined or mismachined ever so slightly by a fraction of a millimetre, like a hundredth of a millimetre, in a plant in Hucknall in northern England, and that caused one of the walls of this tiny, what was called an oil feed stub pipe, to break. Oil flooded into the very hottest part of the engine, instantly it turned to flame, melted the rotor wheel, wobbled, all the turbine blades were thrown off, shrapnel catastrophe. So one's beginning to wonder, and topically, oddly enough, at the moment, Rolls-Royce and Pratt and & Whitney, this was in the papers only yesterday, they've withdrawn so many engines from service because tiny, tiny errors like this are starting to creep into their manufacture, that there is something like a hundred aircraft, Boeing and, and Airbus in Toulouse, that are sitting there waiting for engines because the engines can't be made to the tolerances that are demanded uh, to give the speed and efficiency and, and power um, because, in part, the tolerances that are required are so tiny we must wonder whether humankind is losing the ability to, to work on them. The engineers say, we'll solve it, we always do, but one wonders. And similarly, in the electronic world, I, you know, I do have my phone here, you all know what a phone is, an iPhone. So in this iPhone 8, there is the, the, the working, the beating heart of this is a chip called an A11 chip made for Apple in Taiwan. It's about the size of my pinky finger fingernail. And it has in it 4.3 billion transistors, not million, but billion transistors. Remembering that the transistor was invented only in 1948 and the first one was about the size of your fist. They've now become so small they can accommodate 4.3 billion into one tiny iPhone component. And the most extraordinary statistic, I thought, when I was researching this book, and it's absolutely, everyone says that this is right, although it sounds impossible. There are now more transistors in the world today than there are leaves on all the trees in all the world. I mean, just driving down the turnpike today, you think, there are so many leaves here, we can't possibly have a transistor for everyone, but we do for the entire, entire planet. And yet they're operating at distances, the one from the other, that are so tiny that if you know Heisenberg, if you like, I mean, you're down at quantum levels where things behave in very unpredictable and weird and not fully understood ways. Are we therefore pushing things both mechanically and electronically to the limits where we may not be able to handle it. So then I ask, okay, we have this extraordinary degree of precision. Are we perhaps 
fetishizing it, are we worshipping it too much, relying on it too much, and at the same time disregarding craftsmanship, the imprecise, forgetting that human beings and the landscape, there are no straight lines in us nor in the world, in fact, and there is a sort of beauty in the imprecise as well. And I went to Japan, to, my wife is Japanese, and to look at this because we think of Japan as a country devoted to precision with Canon and Nikon and all these companies. But in fact, to those who are skilled at making things out of wood or ceramics or lacquerware, the Japanese government and, and the Korean government too awards the honorific title of living national treasure and gives people pensions and encourages them to, to, to do this kind of work. So that there is a recognition, yes, we revere titanium, it's true, but we also worship and have respect for things like bamboo. And I think that's very healthy, and I'm afraid that possibly in other countries in the world, um, we may disregard craft and disregard the imprecise. And I want to end this by sharing you a tiny bit of, I'm afraid it's in a Tupperware thing, but you may remember I, this book was spawned by this remarkable man, Colin Povey, who I didn't meet uh, for seven years, but he came up to the first talk I gave in Washington, D.C. We met. We, he's marvelous. I was very moved. I had to say to people, I said, wait a minute, you are Colin Povey, aren't you, sitting in the front row? I said, ladies and gentlemen, this is his book. It's not mine. It was his idea. Yet he is a man who... Uh, as I say, devoted his life to thinking about precision, but was very much himself a craftsman. And he sent me a few days before publication what he called a trinket to welcome this book into the world. And I have it with me here, and mercifully it's survived the, the last uh, four weeks. And I'm going to show it to you, but I just want to say to you, first of all, this is a challenge. I'm sure you're all extremely clever people here. Um, in every audience, people have recognized what this is. Uh, in New York, the New York Society Library on uh, last Wednesday, two people, one of whom was a 12-year-old boy, recognized what it was. <laughs> I gave this talk in Pasadena at the Huntington Library recently, where most of the audience was from Caltech, and almost everyone in the audience knew what this was. So my question to you is, what is this? Because this is what he sent me. Well done. Who said that? Put up your hand. You see a young person. This is great. Uh, with no disrespect to people who are not so young. But just, this, well, I'll explain. It's called a Klein bottle. You probably know what a Mobius strip is. Do you know what a Mobius strip is? You take a sheet, a strip of paper, attach one end to the other, but in doing so, turn it by 180 degrees, and it becomes a two-dimensional object with one surface. Well, this is a three-dimensional object with one surface. It recurves into itself, passes through its body, enters, you know, there's a hole at the other end. Completely useless. Uh, um, but uh, the triumph of a glassmaker's art. And I'm thrilled to have it. I'm thrilled that it has survived. But what's particularly thrilling to me is that although coming from a man who's fascinated by the idea of precision, it is not pre precise at all. There's nothing precise about it. It's bumpy, it's lumpy. But nonetheless... It is the work of a craftsman. It's made with reverence. It's extremely tricky to make. And imprecise though it may be, to me, it is an object of great and everlasting beauty.
So thank you very much indeed.